Sometimes when people visit other churches to speak, uh, they bring with them something that they have uh, done on a number of other occasions. That's just how it, it, it happens to be. But of course, uh, when I was invited to come back, because I was here about a year ago, and uh, I enjoyed that very much when I came last time, I was told, well, actually, we're starting a new series. So uh, perhaps you'd like to, to do that. So I said, yes, that's absolutely fine. And I said to Christine, my wife, I said, well, it's, it's a new one this week. <laughs> and I hope and pray that as I begin this series, that it will be a series of great blessing and encouragement uh, to you all. I suppose you could say it is those that encountered Jesus, those that met Jesus, and I have the privilege this morning of speaking about that very famous Irishman that uh, is in the Bible, Nick Odemus. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That has to be attributed to Graham Kendrick many years ago. And Nicodemus, when he came to see Jesus, we are told that he came by night and... Yet, it was a journey that took him through sight and into light. And uh, I'd just like to unpack that a little bit this morning and see whether or not some of those things will apply to where we are. And uh, there's not a right lot to read up on the screen, but um, I've just put those three things, night, sight, and light, that we will go through uh, one at a time uh, as we journey with Nicodemus. Night. Verse 2 of the reading that we had says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So a number of things that we discover straight away, and uh, I'll come back to the night in a moment, but let's just look briefly at the person. We're told that he was a Pharisee. What did that mean? Well, there were a group of people who clearly were committed to understanding and keeping what they considered to be the law. Really, they majored on the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, and the law was called the Torah. And they were keen to ensure that this was put into practice. And sadly, in some ways, although in other ways helpful, uh, they made so many extra laws to try and explain what these basic or major laws were all about. So that was his commitment. And those that were Pharisees were committed to that. They were teachers, but they used to enforce but Nicodemus was one more than that. He wasn't just a Pharisee, if I may say so. Incidentally, there were another group of people called the Sadducees. They actually didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. That's why they were sad, you see. But uh, this other S is Sanhedrin. 
He was a member of the ruling council, we are told. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin used to pronounce judgments. So there's one group that are ensuring the law was communicated and held up. But there was this other group, the ruling classes, the top, the, the top group uh, were, were like judges. Judges. And would be asked to weigh up things. And one thing that they had to do was to check about heresy. Are there any false prophets? Are there people that are saying things that they shouldn't be saying, that are going against our faith? That's not, that's not insignificant when we think about Nicodemus. And the other thing that we read in that, uh, that verse that uh, I, I read out, it said, We know you have come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. I just want to pose something uh, to you, really, and that is that this occasion of meeting with Nicodemus, as explained by John, was in the early part of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it could be argued in some way that Jesus never really fought, performed any miracles or signs, as they were called, really until he was baptised. But that was very early on in this three-year ministry that he had. So if this event took place, and I think it would have taken place not long after the baptism, we don't find that uh, we're reading a lot in those early parts of the miracles. They all come later. But remember, we're in John's Gospel. And I gather this series is rooted in John's Gospel. And John's Gospel is different from the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to some extent, follow a lot more chronology. That is to say, in, in space and time. John's Gospel was written very differently. And so, actually, you can't start at chapter 1 and go right to the end and assume that everything is in the right order. It's not. It's, it's jumbled. And the reason for that is that John is trying to get across various things that relate to certain aspects of Jesus' ministry, and he wants to get across the Gospel. He wants to talk to people about spiritual things, and he uses things in the life of Jesus to do that, and so it is very different. And so he doesn't include things, perhaps, that might have already been there. Let me just tell you, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, the penultimate uh, chapter, verses 30 and 31, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs, not just the ones that he recorded, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I would judge that there were a number of things that Jesus was doing right at the very beginning that Nicodemus saw, even if we don't have a recording of them. He must have been aware. Now, we are told, and we come back to this idea, that he came to Jesus 
by night. And you can take a natural uh, view of that and say, well, actually, he came for reasons of not wanting to be seen. After all, he was a very significant figure of the Jewish faith. And so uh, perhaps he thought, well, I'd like to know more about this, but I don't want others to see me asking. And sometimes that can happen in our lives, can't we? Whether we're young or whether we're older, we, we suddenly feel we're interested in something, but I know what they feel about it. So I will go quietly. Perhaps he was concerned about his reputation. Perhaps Jesus had been so busy with so many people and he was someone who thought, I don't want to talk to him in the crowd. When's the best time to come? Well, actually, night time. Because actually, a lot of people would have gone by then. That's why sometimes people bring up ministers late at night. <laughs> I used to say to Christine, why does everyone ring me at six o'clock? And I'll ask one about it. Well, we know you're going to be in. <laughs> but actually, because of the nature of John's gospel, looking for the depths, looking for the application, perhaps a spiritual way, I, I want to suggest that uh, when we read in John's gospel, he came to Jesus at night. I think he was more talking about what was going on in Nicodemus. What do I mean by that? I think that John was saying he was in the dark. Have you ever used that phrase, I'm in the dark about this? I'm sure you have. You're trying to understand something. You're trying to get it all together in some ways. But you know, I'm really in the dark about this. What's going on? You see, because he was a very highly intelligent man. He had a lot of knowledge about a lot of things. And I actually think there were struggles going on. He was in the dark. And I'll tell you that because, as I said, part of the role of the Sanhedrin was to vet people who were declaring truths. In other words, this is the teaching, but if we hear wrong teaching or other teaching, then we have to deal with it. A bit later in John's Gospel, one of those things actually takes place, and I'll, I'll mention it then, where, in fact, Nicodemus actually has to say something about it. The truth is, and it's quite clear really, that what Nicodemus was struggling with was he was probably one of that deputation that went to look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as you know, was calling people back to the faith. The Jewish people back to the faith. Turning. The word was repentance. It was turning. Turning back to the faith. And when that was happening, he was baptizing them. Do you remember? And in fact, Jesus came along and and then, amazingly, John the Baptist says, look, this is the one who I am speaking about, whose shoes I cannot even tie up. Son of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to his great surprise, Jesus asked him, John, to baptize Jesus. 
And he said, this is not for, for that way round at all. You should be doing me. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, to fulfill all that I've come for, all the purposes that I've come, taking on myself the sin of the world, you baptize me. This is foreshadowing what I'm going to be doing in three years' time when I go to the cross. Incredible. And I want to suggest to you that Nicodemus was aware of that. And he's suddenly thinking, man, this is incredible. No wonder he came to him at night because he was in the dark. This does not fit. This does not fit with my thinking. This doesn't fit what I think it is. And I'm sad to say, I think there's a number of people who would say that they've been Christians for many years and then they hear something a bit different and they go, this does not fit. I'm in the dark. You see, it's possible to have a lot of knowledge, but wisdom is something else. Because knowledge is not wisdom. Like someone once said, knowledge is knowing what to say, but wisdom is to know when to say it. <laughs> and it is a truth in that, isn't it? But what I'm getting at is that it's not about the acquiring of lots of facts and knowledge and so on. And there's plenty of people, and I've known when I've talked to people about the Christian faith, and they will bombard me with all facts and everything else. And I have to say, actually, you're a person that says, unless you know everything, you will not move one foot in front of the other. You see, if it's something like prayer, we don't have to wait until we understand fully what it's all about to do it. Some people know everything about how a car works. But if you waited until you understood how the combustion engine worked before you drove it, you'd be missing a few tricks. And in life, it's like that. Sometimes we are so concerned to get all it sorted that we don't actually take a step to enjoy it. And the problem is we can become short-sighted or fixed in a very physical way of looking at something but recognising that there is something else. People used to say, oh, well, we're made of um, uh, the body and the mind. And therefore, if we can deal with all those things, we've got things sorted. But if, in fact, we fail to realise that we are body, mind and spirit, then we run into trouble. And the funny thing is we feed the body and we feed the mind, but we don't feed the spirit. And therefore, there's an enormous hunger. But we don't recognise it as hunger, but we know it's there. There must be something more than this. Well, I want to tell you that for all of his commitments to doing the right things and doing good, putting things right and everything else and faith in God, he was still struggling. But he moved. He moved to the next part. And he moved to what I've called sight. Sight. You could even say insight. He comes to Jesus. 
And interestingly enough, he starts to compliment Jesus and, uh, and do things uh, that perhaps to get Jesus' attention and so on. And Jesus has got the insight to know, okay, we'll go around the houses for a little while, but then we'll get to the actual point. So I must let into a secret. Many, many years ago, I wasn't too well, and I went to the doctor, and uh, I'm sitting there, and the doctor's sitting there, and I knew really what I wanted to talk to them about, but, you know, I couldn't come out with it straight away. Just found myself thinking, oh, perhaps we'll work up to it. <laughs> and I'd talk about this and talk about that. And then the very wise doctor said, he said, well, how many more things are we going to be talking about before you tell me what you've really come for? And I told him, and he said, yeah, I thought that would be okay. And I think this is a lovely example of that, where Jesus almost gives him, but stops. Because actually, he cuts right through uh, with a particularly interesting phrase. He says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It reminds me of the rich young ruler in Mark's Gospel, who uh, we are told came and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? In fact, the man ran up, said he ran up to him, fell on his knees. Good teacher, what must I do? Being born again, we've already been given a definition of, so that's fine. And we are aware that, in fact, over the years, it has become uh, a phrase that people have either loved or hated. I've heard from people, oh, that's those American evangelists who use that phrase, don't they? Or it's a group of people in the life of the church that, that want to see the church believing and doing things in a certain way. Makes you into a specific group. I've even heard it used in a secular context. friend who, in fact, uh, never liked golf, and then in latter years took it up. He said, I'm a born-again golfer. The fact of the matter is, it's a phrase that has become used over the... But the truth is, it is a biblical phrase that Jesus used. So there must be some truth in it that we need to take seriously. I've used words like a rebirth, a redemption a change, a transformation, a renewal. But the key to it all is that it's about what God does in us as opposed to what we do as an offering to him. It's about what he does in us. It's much more about receiving through believing than it is doing to receive. You hear me? And that's often the, the, the stumbling block. Jesus went on to say that you've got to be born of water and the Spirit. Well, I haven't had to give birth to any children, 
They used to say if men had to do it, there'd only be one per family. But the truth is that uh, you hear the phrase, my waters have broke. Because in the birthing process, the bringing into life process, there is water. We are a lot of water in us. We're born of water. But we have to be born of the Spirit. We have to allow what Jesus has done for us when he went to that cross to become effective in us, which is done through the work of the Holy Spirit. It challenges us to think about changing, and then it actually does the change. The Holy Spirit challenges us, speaks to us about receiving Jesus Christ into our life. But he actually does make the change. And I believe Nicodemus got that sight. Suddenly began to see the light through the night. He suddenly began to be less in the dark and started to move towards the light. He wasn't someone who was so blind that he would not see. I had someone I knew who used to say, I used to say, can I ask you a question? He'd say, the answer is no. What is the question? Sadly, we can find those people who gather for congregational worship. The answer is no. Will you, uh, before you go any further, the answer is no. <laughs> now tell me the question. In other words, it's a predetermination to I will not. Over my dead body will I become a Christian. You see, that's what we do. And I wonder if Nicodemus was at a very strong place of going, oh, I'm in trouble now. Well, I want to tell you that I believe that, Jesus, that Nicodemus moved from night to sight and that's this John chapter 7, verses 50 and 51. I mentioned it earlier where I said they had to make judgments about people as to whether or not they were sound. <laughs> Let me read it. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own, so we're talking about the ruling, uh, you know, the ruling group here, uh, the Sanhedrin, they wanted to condemn Jesus. And he says this, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? In other words, his moments of courage. He'd seen more, he'd experienced more, now he has to make a judgment in front of all his contemporaries and colleagues, and they're all for, for dealing with Jesus, and he's going, no, no. Something is being changed in him. The spirit is working in him, and he's being changed. Notice that Jesus uses the illustration about wind. 
verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I'll be interested to know that the Hebrew word for spirit and wind are both the same. It's ruach. Now, I'm a sailor, uh, in as much as I'm a dinghy sailor, and uh, you get the impression, you know, you don't know where it comes from in that phrase. You think, well, I do, uh, because I need to know if you're sailing the direction of the wind. But it doesn't mean that. What it means is you don't know the origin, and you don't know where beyond. But actually, you do know two things. You know the direction of it, certainly, and you only can see the effects of it. If I go out there and it's blowing a hooli, as we say, there's every chance I'll end up in the water. That's the strength of it. But, you know, in spiritual terms and in terms of the Holy Spirit, we have to realize that we can't put everybody in boxes. The work of the Spirit does different things in different people. And the difficulty I've found over the 40 years of ministry is that we try and make it that uh, the Holy Spirit does it this way and this is the only way he does it. And unless you're experiencing it in that way, you're not experiencing it. And I can remember over the years various different manifestations when it seemed that the Spirit was particularly uh, strong uh, or present is a better way of saying it. I remember once talking to God in prayer about this. Why is it that some people seem to express this and other people, they're like the rock of Gibraltar, you know? And I was walking with Christy, my wife, uh, in Dovening at the Winkworth Arboretum. And it was that moment where I'm looking up at the trees and it was quite a windy day and it was all almost as if this little voice said to me, look at the trees, look at the trees. I looked at the trees and there was one tree that was making so much noise. It was rattling away and doing all sorts of things. But next door was another tree and you couldn't hear a thing. And there was another tree, not that far, bending over and all sorts of things. And there was another tree that just didn't think that wind existed. And it was as if the voice said, what do you see? Is the wind coming along, going through that one, taking a right turn, missing that one, going through there, go, no. It's the same wind. But it's the specific trees that actually create the differences. And it was like a revelation. Thank you, Lord, that we can all be part of this, but we must not assume that we're all going to react or do exactly the same. But we're all part when we allow the Spirit to do that, to enable us to become what we want to become. I'm nearly done. Christopher Columbus, one of my favorite explorers, used to... Uh, you know, look for new worlds. We know all about that. But if you read the stories of how they sailed, Christopher Columbus used to take a, a slightly different approach to many of those 
sailors, those explorers. Many of them would decide where they were going to go and fight the wind, we call it tacking and all sorts of things, to get to where they wanted to go. Christopher Columbus used to say, I'll put the sails up and where the wind takes me, I'll go. And when you speak about those that were fighting to get to a certain place, he'd say, why are you battling so much? He said, because we want to make sure we can get back. We want to make sure that we can get back. Christopher Columbus says, well, you only become an explorer when you're not willing to go back. Oh, an interesting, isn't it? I just leave that with you. <laughs> because I can understand <laughs> as being someone who likes to be sort of uh, secure. <laughs> I like to make sure that I'm okay. <laughs> but he'd acquired something where he said, no, no. I'm going to go where the wind takes me. That's, that's why he managed to discover so many things. Perhaps in our Christian life, we have to journey and say, I won't always play it safe, but by faith, I will trust him who wants the best for me and step out. And I think there was something going on with Nicodemus. So third and finally, in uh, verse 21, uh, we read, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I wonder if people's behavior would be very different if they believed that God was aware. I don't believe in God. He's not there. Therefore, I can do what I like. We've lost something of an overarching authority. We've become the authority. But it's a healthy thing when we have someone who has an authority over us, that has a way. But what do we find about this person who has the authority over us? Well, verse 16, most popular verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Incidentally, I prefer eternal life to everlasting life, because that word means of greater quality. There are people who live a life on this earth and they really suffer. They really suffer. And it's a good thing to know that heaven does not have the same quality of what you've existed down here, especially if you've been saved. That there will be a release of some people mentally and physically in heaven. Please remember Eternal life is not about everlasting. I'm not saying it isn't everlasting, but I'm talking about what's everlasting. Because some people might say, if this is what it is, I don't want it everlasting. <laughs> but no, it's not. It means, the original word means something of a new quality, of a God quality, a faultless quality. We live in a fallen world. It's not fallen there. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not wanting to be alone in eternity without us, but not wanting us to remain in the place that we are. Is it today that God is calling you to take a step of faith?
to receive trust and to trust him and walk uh, in him by his spirit, to be changed by him. Perhaps that's for you today. I pray that you'll take it seriously because I believe that Nicodemus did. And how do I know that? John 19, verses 38 to 43. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, this is after Jesus has died. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. By the way, that's not money, that's weight. And I can tell you that if you had 75 pounds of those, you were a rich man. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs at the place where Jesus was crucified. There was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid it there. Nicodemus transformed and changed through his encounter with Jesus. And Jesus himself said, it is by their fruits there are known. Not by their words, but by their fruits. It is evidence there of change from what was done. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But my favorite is when the Apostle Paul, with his missionary partner, Titus, who was left in Crete, when Paul wrote to him, in that, that we call Titus in the, book, in the Bible, let me just read this and then I'm done. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour, this is Paul writing to Titus, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done. Did you hear that? not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his grace and mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Still with me? Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that having been put right, justified by his grace we become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things, Titus, in your witness, that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what God is, is doing and what God is, is saying is good. These things are excellent and profitable. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, in the dark, from night through sight and insight into a life of living work through 
not by his own works, but by the grace of God, he will be dwelling what we want for all. Don't we? Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this account of the encounter of Nicodemus with Jesus. May it be that his life, his ways, his understanding will have something that resonates with each of us. But may we not just know about Nicodemus, but may we know the importance of the story. And may we respond. In Jesus' name we pray.